Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. If you're listening to this podcast, you're more than likely getting divorced. If you're getting divorced, you're more than likely going to enter another relationship. With a staggering divorce rate of 50% of first marriages, 60% of second marriages, and 70% of third marriages ending in divorce, we have Dr. Thomas Jordan joining us to explain the difference in healthy versus unhealthy relationships in hopes of helping you choose and engage in the next relationship differently. Dr. Jordan is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. He's on the faculty of NYU's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis, author of Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. Oh, Dr. Jordan, that sounds so sad, but you're going to make us happy because you're also, you're also the founder of lovelifelearningcenter.com. Dr. Jordan specializes in the treatment of unhealthy love relationships and has been studying them for over 30 years. So Dr. Jordan, welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Judith. Absolutely. And here's my first question. How's Mm -hmm. your love life? Ah, (laughs) very good. Uh, Well, uh, let me take you back a little bit. Uh, Part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I changed my own love life. Uh, In the course of a personal therapy experience, I wanted to distill it into a book that people could use to initiate their own working on their love life. Uh, I did that back um, in my early to middle 30s. I was having a lot of disappointing relationships between 17, 18 years old and 32 or 3 or 4 So uh, my analyst pointed out to me that my mother had taught me quite a few things about love relationships that were unhealthy. So what I did is I began to enter a process of unlearning some of that information and discovering, making conscious things that I had learned in my family of origin that were resulting in the disappointing love relationships I was experiencing. So I made changes. Shortly after that, I met my wife, Victoria. We've been married for 28 years. Excellent. And this is your only marriage, correct? Only marriage. Uh, my wife is also a, a psychotherapist. She's in the other room. We have a group practice together. She's working at the moment. <laughs> um, absolutely. My, uh, matter of fact, just to fill it in a little, my mother taught me unintentionally that eligible women were dependent, controlling, and self-centered. Interesting. Because she, she struggled with these emotional issues in her own life. I went looking for this type of person for my love life. And the scary part about it is when I found someone who wasn't, I imagined they were. That's how strong those expectations were when they were unconsciously active. Uh, when they were made conscious, I began to realize that there were people, women, in the world who are independent, not controlling, and able to be intimate, not self-centered. So I started to broaden what I expected to encounter in my love life. And as a consequence, opportunities became available that weren't there prior. 
So fascinating how that that works, that your intention creates what you connect with. Ah, absolutely. And it's uh it's how the in the book I talk about how the the learning about love relationships becomes part of our psychological love life, what we bring to our love life in the form of beliefs about love relationships, how we behave in love relationships or looking for love relationships, and the familiar feelings that attract us. Um, And there's something kind of almost like a little mysterious and scary about it, because if you're familiar, for example, with feelings of loss, uh, because you've experienced an abandonment, for example, and unhel- I, 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 <clears throat> I cite that as one of the uh, biggies, one of the big unhealthy relationship experiences that I encountered over the years. People presenting with abandonment experiences earlier in life, one or the other, both parents in some instances, and uh, and how they found unavailable partners as a consequence in their love life, recreating. And here's the kicker. Judith, recreating the feeling of loss over and over and over again. And when people would talk about it, I became aware in a subtle way of the familiarity of that feeling. Um, They would even say things like, oh, most men cheat. Most men are unavailable. Like, Like that was the belief that's embedded in that recreation of experience over and over again. And in the book, I talk about, you know, repetition is the first piece of evidence we look for. When disappointments are repeating, there's an indication that maybe something's been learned that's in control of our love lives, as opposed to making conscious choices. So from there, we go to replication. What's being unconsciously replicated? What's the blueprint of experience that's taught us? what our expectations should be, what the familiarity, by the way, the root of familiarity is family, family, familiarity, what the familiarity has taught us. Um, and then the, I, I think the most important part is how we unconsciously recreate that experience over and over again. Once it's familiar in the unconscious, it becomes the blueprint. And what's very tragic about this and why I continued staying in this field of research is that it's very tragic. I met people in their 50s and 60s who've had repeated unhealthy love relationships. And if you look at them over on a continuum over time, you see the same theme, different people, different situations and such, but the same theme running through over and over until they reach a point of resignation. I'm telling you, that's just so painful to get to your 50s and 60s and be resigned. No love for me. Too painful. I know. Ergo, 70% of third Uh marriages end in divorce. And that's, you know, that's most. And so so what you're saying is what I have learned from my therapist colleagues and friends. I'm a divorce mediator. My Mm -hmm. colleagues and friends about uh, learned behavior, which you just explained brilliantly. And 
I'm not a therapist. I'm a mediator. So I can only do so much when I listen to people characterize their spouses in pejorative ways. And I say, well, did you get to know the parents? What was that like? And all of a sudden that light bulb goes on uh-huh. when uh-huh. they're looking at their spouse. Uh-huh. But now most importantly, what you're saying is that light bulb needs to go on when looking at yourself. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Right. And that's why I make a big deal in the book and in my work about the psychological love life. I'm my interest is not so much in what goes on between people, even though I'm interested in that as well. But I want to focus people on the psychological love life. What's stored in our minds that predicts and controls the experiences we have in our love lives? That's what I'm interested in, because that blueprint is unbelievably powerful. It's powerful for a number of reasons. One of them is We learn it early in life. Another one is we're learning it from dear old mom and dad and all the family members. We get to watch their relationships with each other. We get to have relationships and we're treated in a certain way in the context of those relationships. And every once in a while, we get an instruction. Now, that's less that's less common. I think observation and relationship are the two primary ways this unconscious learning takes place. But it's incredibly powerful and impossible to change without consciousness. I mean, it's hard enough once we become conscious of it, because the consciousness, as the old Freudians used to suggest, you know, just become conscious and everything else falls in place. I'm sorry. Becoming conscious is step number one. Now you have to apply it. You have to unlearn. You have to challenge this automatic pattern. And I like, and I talk about it as the unlearning method in the book. You have to move your love life in an opposite direction. For example, we mentioned abandonment early. If you've been exposed to abandonment, learning about and understanding the practice of commitment, choosing partners who possess that ability, that's a study that needs to take place to make permanent and lasting changes in your love life. So when somebody is dealing with a partner, they're dating, they're not yet married, who seems to be wavering on commitment, is the natural reaction of the other person to force it rather than say, wait a minute, let me figure out why I'm with somebody who doesn't want commitment and why don't they? How how does this work when you're with yeah. somebody who's avoiding commitment? Right there, I I believe there are different approaches. Uh, one approach, which you mentioned, is trying to change the person you're in love with. Uh, by the way, I've been in this business for 35 years, and I've never met a successful case of that. I'm still looking, Judith. I'm still looking, but people try. People try. The only thing you get when you try to change people is the R&R, and it's not rest and relaxation. It's resistance and resentment. Yeah. Because people don't change unless they want to. Yes. Absolutely. So uh, an old friend used to say to me, um, the trick to a 
honest and good love life is find someone whose faults you can live with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I heard that. I went to a, a mediation convention and they had a lawyer and a therapist talking just about this. And they had three couples that were married a million years each. And uh-huh. each couple said their 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 habits and their daily behaviors did not bother them, which is the thing right. that chips away, right? The Absolutely. toothpaste cap, the socks uh-huh. on the right, floor. Right, right, right. I mean, look, I've been married 28 years. I love my wife, Victoria. I love her. She's my soulmate. She has little habits I don't care about. I compensate for them. I ignore them. They don't bother me. I would never leave her over them. And I'm sure if she was sitting beside me, she'd say the same thing to you. Because, I mean, in the course of our relationship, I've learned some things. There are other little habits that I might have that, you know, she doesn't like or I can tell it bothers her. But it's not enough to create conflict. And that's what I meant by, you know, you can live with. Um, so trying to change people is really an unhealthy practice. Okay, so I'm sorry to interrupt it. In in a situation where one spouse is annoyed about you know, household behavior, wh- why? Why are they operating on that level as opposed to a deeper level of appreciation of other things that matter in the relationship. Well, if it's a if it's an enduring healthy relationship, I would say both things are occurring. We're human beings. Uh, we have our likes and dislikes. There's really no perfection in life. Um, relationships have to be worked on. The past impinges on them from time to time. Um, in the course of the relationship, uh, we have to look at our pasts when they show up once again and once again. And we and 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 hopefully, I think I encourage this among my 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 patients is what to have a healthy, enduring relationship. You work on your relationship, you your partner, and it's a partnership in the sense of being able to communicate about each other's psychological love life. You might not call it that. Um, you, you don't have to use that language, but an awareness of how the other person relates to you and how you relate to them is really a, a communication issue. I, I think that being able to talk to each other about what types of patterns might show up in your relationship that make it harder to preserve the relationship, that interfere, that invite conflict, that communication is golden. I believe it's essential. Can you give an example, please, of what that might be? Um, Okay, uh, I'll give you a personal one. They're always the best. Um, Shortly after marriage, um, I would have uh, experiences where I thought my wife was being very controlling because that's the environment that I emerged from in childhood. And uh, I, I did a lot of work on that. I, I worked through an emotional separation with my mother, which permitted me to put a lot of that in context. But we have an unconscious experience. We carry it with us. Now I'm in a new context with Victoria. So elements of that would come up and she would challenge them. 
she would say to me, and it turned into a joke after a while. She'd walk away and say, I'm not your mother. Oh, <laughs> you <that's> know? <laughs> that's I, great. And, and, and it would be, it be, it, it, and, and, and what, after a while, I began to realize that that's something she was kind of helping me with, you know? And the same thing happened with her. And there were patterns of her relationship with her father and mother. They, the two of them divorced. So there was conflict there. My parents never divorced, but her parents did. And every once in a while, she would distance from me. Um, she had this pattern. I remember the first argument we had, right, in our living room. And it wasn't a, a bang out, big old fight. It was a disagreement that the two of us got kind of uh, rigid about, right? So uh, she gets up walks away, goes into her office and closes the door. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the living room like, what just happened? Like, I mean, I'm not done talking. I, 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 there's more to say here. We haven't resolved anything. So I got up and I walked into her office and I sat on the couch and she goes, what? <laughs> and, <laughs> you became and, her patient. Well, I said, I'm not going to replicate your parenting relationship with the relationship you had, the, the, the observations you made with your mother and father. We're going to talk about this. We have to. We have to reach an agreement. So being aware of what kinds of things can occur that we import from our earlier experiences is very important. And when two people become aware of how important that is and can communicate about it, they do and undo, do and undo these issues that can get hold of a relationship and cause problems. Can you, it, it's, uh, what is the essential need of people when they get into relationships or marriage? Is there a common essential need? Uh, essential need. Um, there are probably several, but. Um, I think the healthiest love relationship makes room for mutual individuality. I love. I believe that each person is a unique individual, and uh, even though we've all been taught various things by family and culture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that uniqueness of individuality is there. It remains there for a lifetime. And when you're in a love relationship and you feel like there's room in that relationship for that unique individuality to emerge, have a place, be recognized, I think that that creates a, an essential feeling of love and um, just peace of mind. I love that you said that. I really do because isn't it easy for people once they are married? Now, different dating versus married quite often. Dating um if it's a heterosexual relationship, um one person is flirtatious, generally the woman, the man likes to go on the hunt. I mean, these are stereotypical Yeah. Mm -hmm. traits that I'm saying, and I understand it can be, you know, different proportions with each person, but then they're married. And what I have noticed is 
once the marriage happens, once the wedding day is over, that will either serve to enhance people and allow the individuality to grow because we liked our mate while we were dating because they were different. They treated us hopefully the way we wanted to be treated, hopefully. Um, But then something happens, something erodes, and it seems like we want them to be like us. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Did I get that right? I I would add to that. That's one dynamic. Or we want them to be like someone we've known or mm-hmm. know. Uh, uh, I've seen that pattern. You you get together with someone. It's unusual. It's unfamiliar. Okay. Um, and uh, it's exciting. And you're free. You feel free. That's yes. important. You feel free. Yeah. Right? It's easy, free, unusual. Then you get married. And suddenly you're behaving like your father and she's behaving like your mother. How the hell did that happen? Yep. Happened to me. And to me, that's the importing of undigested, unresolved, earlier learning that's stimulated by the act of marriage. Oftentimes people will marry and what it does is it triggers backroom material to come into experience. Not necessarily consciously. It just becomes more active. Now I expect my wife to act like my mother. Notice the example I gave. I'm not your mother. (laughs) She was hanging on to her freedom, life and death right there. Right? Right. (laughs) And it's like, I don't want to be your mother, man. You know, I want to be this unfamiliar, independent, not controlling, intimate woman in your life, husband, Tom, please. Yes. And uh, what it, I could hear that because I stopped myself and I listened. Okay, my wife's in the other room saying, I'm not your mother. What does this mean? Let me take myself out for a walk. Let me go back into that room with her and talk about it. Let me understand what's going on and become conscious of what I'm importing into my love relationship that is strangulating the unfamiliar, strangulating that sense of freedom that I'm looking for, that that separation from what I've learned earlier in life. Same issue that we're talking about. You, you've, you've erected a different uh, application of it, but it's the same issue, how the past and what we've learned about love relationships can wait in abeyance and then show up because marriage is one of those experiences that makes us feel like, okay, I can't fool around anymore. I have to become like my family. I have to, I have to live a certain way now. Right. Don't we all fall into roles? So when we're dating, that's one role. When we're married, that's another role. When we have a child, that's another role. Is there comfort and familiarity then in the assumption of the roles that we play in our lives? The various well, I, w- I would say that if you line up all those roles, there's less role in the single department. 
in my experience. Uh, okay. That's freer. Uh, there's no role. I haven't made a commitment. You're right. Uh, I, it's uh, it's like I, I'm a little freer. I can, you know, stay or leave. Right. There's no legal bind. Well, that's true. And I can, you know, I can take my time. I can be weird. I can do all kinds of stuff, right? Um, marriage? Uh-oh. Boom. Religion behind it. The state yeah. behind it. The yeah. families in the service, rings, I do's. Oh boy, what a weight to stay free in that environment. I don't know, Judith. <laughs> it takes a little work. <laughs> so then, is the real goal in a relationship, in a marriage, to be with somebody that, going back to what you said earlier, allows you to be the unique person you are without fear of expressing yourself. Yeah. Uh, In a healthy the, way, of course. Yes. The word I would put the light on is allow. Okay. Uh, there's, uh, there's issues in that word. That's a loaded word. I'm going to be my individuality whether you like it or not. You don't like it, you know, we're not going to last very long in a relationship. Um, if you like it, we're together. Because I'm going to feel comfortable and acknowledged. I'm going to feel invited. And I'm going to do the same for you. And that is a healthy foundation in a love relationship. Because that unique individuality it has a space. I, I kid I kidded with my wife a while ago. I work in my apartment. I'm in Manhattan on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, uh, my wife has an office there. I'm in my office, waiting room, bathroom, separate entrance, then the apartment, personal space, blah, blah, blah. And and when we took this apartment, I said to my wife, I said, you know, we, we're going to be working in an apartment. We have to have separate space, your office, your your female den. My male den. This is our separate space. And she giggled about that. It was kind of interesting. Our spaces are very different. They reflect our individuality. Nobody does anything in my office except me. I mean, my family comes in, we talk, we hang out, but the furniture's where I want it. The books are where I want it. Nobody's criticizing. My mother's not here to clean up. <laughs> um, and I don't. Uh, <laughs> Sorry and about I don't, that. I don't do any of that in in her in my wife's office. That's her individual space, yeah. and I think that there's something to that. In my experience, that having individual space. Now you can make a psychological issue out of that. It's not only space; it's also a sense of being. Can I be my true self with you, and vice versa? And that is extreme intimacy the yes. intimate relationship i i made up i make the point in my book at the very beginning in the preface that this is not a book about love love is an unpredictable uncontrollable wonderful experience that does us right we can't control it i hope we never do it's a mysterious wonderful experience most people can have more than once in their lives 
beautiful. That's not my concern. My concern is the love relationship, the relationships we form that contain that love, that nurture that love, that allow that love to thrive and grow. That's what we can do something about. We The biggest tragedy in life is falling in love with somebody and then setting up an unhealthy relationship because that will stifle and destroy the feeling of love that has been naturally established. Understand. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about a friend and colleague of mine who's been married 35 years. They started their relationship out by traveling together. Uh, He was a performer and she drove while he wrote jokes and, you know, his stage stuff. Uh, so they, they started together, then got married. And I asked him, I said, I, 35 years is quite a long time to remain married and you seem extremely happy. He's only been complimentary about his wife. And he said, I enjoy her company more than anybody else's company. And sometimes we just sit quietly together and hold hands. We don't need to speak. (laughs) Okay, all of a sudden I wanted to cry when I said that. Is that not the loveliest thing ever? It's very lovely. And it it, it really is a good example of that peacefulness that we talked about. You know, when you're when you're compatible like that with someone and there's a basic acceptance and you're not the same people, you know, you it, it's not like a, a narcissistic relationship where you have to be like me and I have to be like you. It's, it's, it's a sense of accepting that this is an individual that you want in your life. And, 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 and so you make an accommodation for them and you enjoy their differences. You, I mean, when their differences come, you don't feel threatened by them. You pay attention. You watch. You enjoy. There are things my wife does that I, 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 I my wife is, my, my wife's mother is a voice teacher, right? And uh, she taught various people in, in the classics, different opera and such. And my wife, knows a lot of opera and classic tunes, and she will break out in song every once in a while, you know? And I just sit there watching. I enjoy hearing my wife sing. And I I don't interact with her when she does that. I just sit by like I'm in the audience enjoying this impromptu <laughs> you know <laughs> that is so that is so wonderful and this colleague and friend who has been married 35 years um said something that really rang true with me because I do the same thing with people and he said it's really not that hard to make your spouse happy all you have to do is pay attention yeah pay listen attention. to like them that. That's nice. they will <laughs> tell you what uh-huh. makes them happy and if you can be supportive of that, right? You you've got a great relationship going. That's that's good. That's good. And I I happen to believe that this can happen at any age. Mm. It's not good. only exclusively for younger people or middle aged people. Even though I do think that middle age is an interesting time. Um, it's a time when 
people are old enough and still young enough to take a look at some of these learned patterns, uh, to do a little bit of what they used to call midlife crisis. Well, let me change that. Midlife opportunity, (gasps) an opportunity to separate from one's past when it's unhealthy. Love that. Love that. Midlife opportunity. Because we are always evolving and changing. Our core uh-huh. may stay the same, uh-huh. but we can't stay the same. Experiences in life shape us. Yes. And 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 how much of the core emerges in the course of life uh, is variable. Um, we may go through our 20s and 30s with some of our individuality on the surface of experience. In middle age and in older age, other aspects of that individuality may emerge that we never predicted or expected to see. So it's, it's it can true. be surprising. It can be surprising. Human beings are fascinating in that way. They evolve a reality from the inside out. And if you're willing to acknowledge it and see it and, and be with it, it's a wonderful thing to experience. Okay, so I have a question, and this is This is well before I even got into the divorce business. I would look at married couples in front of me engaging in conversation with me and other people. And there are some couples where where one person will continuously, softly criticize what the other person is saying in a group conversation where everybody's just talking. And I was just with a married couple About a month ago, we were outside talking, several people together. They've been married quite a while. Their oldest daughter in her 20s just got married. And it was just nothing, you know, just shooting the shit, so to speak. We were Uh all talking. And the wife kept, when the husband was speaking, she would either correct him or, or criticize him. And he just kept going on. He just kept talking, which I was so happy he didn't focus on that because I was starting to become very uncomfortable. I had no idea what he was saying that needed any kind of critique. But what happens to couples when they turn that corner and one or both people will start criticizing the the simplest little things that the other person says? Yeah, Yeah. I am. I believe that that kind of interaction where you're picking up these subtle criticisms, that, in my experience, means that the person doing the criticizing has a lot of unexpressed emotion Mm -hmm. going on. Um, And they are either suppressing it for whatever reason. They don't want a confrontation. They don't want to feed into conflict. But they're upset. And that upset feeling is creating these subtle, um, slightly defensive ways of putting down what the other person's saying. And in my work, see, if that if I as a, I used to do a lot of marital therapy at one time in my career, and if I was sitting with two people that were talking about something, and and one was doing that to the other, I would. As a marital therapist, I would freeze that moment and I would ask the person who's doing the criticisms, I think you're upset, I might say to him or her, and pause, giving that person an invitation to go beyond criticism and express what's upsetting them. 
And if the other person tried to shut it down, and sometimes that happens, like almost like they have an implicit agreement, you know, oh, no, no, don't start talking about that. I would, you know, gently stop that person and say, no, it's important that your wife or your husband have an opportunity to talk about what's motivating these multiple criticisms. And I think that's that what that does is it invites the underlying emotion, underlying issues to the surface. And now you got a bunch of new stuff to work on. Um, but that's I, I think that's why it's there. But if you're doing mediation or you're not there to perform therapy on them, or it's it's better that you leave these ghosts in the background uninvited. Um I'm I'm not sure what I mean. You'll have to be a little bit well. well the way I, the, the way a mediator really needs to handle that because again, it's not therapy. We are there to advance a conversation about settlement terms. Yeah, now that's our job, yeah. and so we have to be careful and delicate about saying, "Let's just focus on the settlement." Yeah. Okay. Let's just focus. Let's just focus because. Uh-huh. I think people don't realize when they get off track. They don't realize when they fall into those patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Of criticism. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Um, I went on your blog page, on your website. I found the topics very, very interesting. Um, and so I pulled two blog titles that I wanted you to address. And please address them in the order you would like to. Okay. The one is, how do I avoid getting divorced again? Uh-huh. <laughs> the other is, am I psychologically prepared to have a healthy love relationship? Uh-huh. Um, how do I avoid getting divorced again? You know, I've realized in the past, I have a publicist, uh, Emma LaRoche, uh, and she and I have talked a little bit about this. I'm very interested in divorced people because... I feel that they are in a good position to ask a question. And that's the question. How do I avoid getting divorced again? Which implies uh, I'm still interested in love. I'm still interested. I'm not dead yet. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to go into resignation. In, In many instances, not to say there aren't some that say, okay, this is first or second divorce, I'm done, or third divorce, I'm done. But a lot of divorced people are struggling with the feeling of, oh boy, you know, this relationship failed, but I'm not done yet. I want love. I'm going to get out there again. I'm going to uh, try again. Now, that's where I insert my question. How can I avoid getting divorced again? Um, A general answer, you have to work on your love life. We work on everything else. We work on our financial lives, our educational lives, our medical lives, our occupational lives. We have to work on our love life. What that means is to ask questions about what do I expect? What have I learned that is hurting or interfering? with the possibility of having a healthy love relationship. What was my contribution to this divorce? Uh, As a marital therapist years ago, I held on to the principle that every relationship is a 50-50 experience. I don't care if one person is 
got a megaphone and saying, you are the problem to the other person. There is always a 50-50 distribution of responsibility for what went on in the relationship. It's sometimes buried. Sometimes the 150% is harder to see. Uh, the other one may create feelings because it's more dire. Uh, but there's usually a 50-50 distribution of responsibility. So as a divorced person, to ask oneself, what was my contribution? What did I bring to the party, so to speak, that resulted in this divorce? That's an extremely powerful question. So what I'm doing is I'm inviting people to think about love life as something you work on, work on. It means that you have to update the files every once in a while. You have to ask questions like, maybe the way I behaved in my marriage needs to change. Maybe the feelings I created need to be changed, or the beliefs I have about a love relationship need to be changed. And this is the work of revising one's psychological love life so that your expectations and your behavior and the feelings you create in the relationship are changed as a result. Just as I did, uh, that's what happened to me. When I was looking unconsciously for dependent, controlling, self-centered people, I found quite a few. They're not prepared for a love relationship. Uh, they're still evolving, they're stuck, whatever. Uh, but that's what I was familiar with, so that's what I found. And that's what I expected even. So when I was able to challenge that, that was my personal work on my love life, and say, no, there are people who are independent that happen to be women. There are people that are not controlling that happen to be women. There are people who are not self-centered but can be intimate and mutual that happen to be women. That broke it up in some way. That allowed me to see beyond what I was familiar with and able to begin uh, an unlearning process so I could expand my expectations. I could see a little more of what was out there, the people I was meeting. And a lot of that resulted, I, I'll give you an example. You know, during that period, you know, the period between my analyst pointing out that I was using my mother's template and actually meeting Victoria, I think of it as a love life internship. I, uh, I made friends with several women who, not romantically, I never had a sister. I just had three brothers. So my mother was really a prominent primary model for me. But I found women, where one woman in particular, we were friends, best buddies for five years. Um, she and I went places together. She had men she was interested in. We'd talk about it. I had women I was in. We'd talk about it. So we were friends. No romance, no sexual activity, just friends. And I, she was an independent, not controlling, intimate person. So I felt like, you know, I had a magnifying glass and I'd be standing next to her like, okay, what planet are you from? I, 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 I've never encountered a person with this level of development, maturity. Mm -hmm. So as I began to understand this and broaden my perspectives, when Victoria showed up, I noticed it. 
I saw her. Uh, our conversations, and, and, and you know, and, and I knew her for a little while too. I had, I knew she was. Um, uh, we had had conversation. It didn't work out so well because I wasn't prepared for an independent, not controlling, intimate person. I had this model going on that was controlling eligibility, what I was expecting. Um, but when I was able to break the, that learning up, you know, unlearn it, uh, stop realizing how important the opposite features were, the independence, um, the ability to be free in a relationship and not controlling of one's partner, the ability to be intimate. Um, I think that then I could appreciate that she was really a different kind of person from what I had experienced. And the likelihood of a healthy love relationship was better there. And that's what and you And you circled back. So you, you didn't have the best encounter. Uh, it wasn't a love at first sight kind of thing. Uh, well, wait. It was, I noticed something about her, but then I distanced myself. Um, I ran. <laughs> now you're going to get the details. I ran after graduate school. My job was, in my early 30s, I ran a clinic. I, uh, I ran a psychiatric clinic in Queens, a very large clinic. My wife showed up for a job interview. And I, I you know, like you, you're sitting with somebody and you kind of feel something, but yes. you're in a professional role. I mean, you know, I, I can't like, you know jeopardize my thing here you know what i mean i got an executive director to answer to you know i have to i have to be cool but i noticed something about her and i hired her not because she wasn't eligible for the job come on (laughs) i hired her and i had contact with her on the staff and uh we even had lunch together once but it was you know with her boss but i have to admit i was in the background, I had my binoculars on. I was taking a look, um, but it, I wasn't ready for a relationship, so I couldn't. I couldn't really be there. I had a distance. I had a defensive little shield going. You know, I had other women in my life who was more like my mother than she would be. And it's a process. Yeah, and then I left the job and I moved on to private practice and other things. And a couple of years later, she called me to refer a patient. She was working at a psychiatric hospital here in New York. And she, you know, I remember you. And she said, you're on the list of referrals. I remember you. So I'm going to talk to you about the patient. And then toward the end, I said, how have you been? And I was in a different state of mind at that point. I had gotten to the point of wanting to find a companion. I was, uh, at the time, I was 39 years old. I was feeling more like I wanted to move on in my love life, not hang around with the people I was hanging around before. And she said, if you want to talk to me, call me tonight. Okay, I I just got excited. I did. (laughs) So cool. No, that's so cool. And it was, uh, there was, uh, you know, there was, a, and, and she, you know, you hang around with those guys after work on Friday nights like you used to. No, no, I, I don't, I don't do that anymore, Victoria. And then we went out to dinner and we acknowledged that we were both available and it happened pretty quickly. She moved in two months later, uh, lived together for a year and a half, and then we got married. 
<laughs> so it was like <laughs> that, that. You know what? That is really great. So, so I mean, this, thank you for sharing that. That was so lovely and sweet and endearing of you, and and it demonstrates what you've been talking about. All right, All right. That's I. Yeah, I, in the book, I, I, I was, I was like, you know, I, I was struggling. Should I? you know, get a bunch of patients to give me permission to put their material in the book. Then I thought, nah, talk to talk, walk to walk. Uh, chapter five, my love life. <laughs> and I figured that was the best example I could use. You know, let me, let me get out there. I Everybody agree. has a love life issue. Everybody yeah. has concerns. Okay, so thank you for saying that. This is my next question. <coughs> People that come from an extremely healthy family. Now, I'm ancient. So I've met a lot of families before I even went into divorce mediation. I have met one family, okay, one and a half families okay. that actually appeared healthy that allowed everybody to be who they were. This one family had one gay son, totally accepting of him, never an issue. He could bring his significant others on trips, or he brought me, which I loved, because uh -huh. uh, then that was a lot of fun. But when people come from healthy families where the parents allow each other to be who they are, nobody criticizes one another, there's laughter, <laughs> Do they, they are then set up to have better relationships because now they come from this pattern, this mold? Or should they um, also do some work on themselves just to make sure? Uh, generally stated, they're in a better position. Um, I would wager that they've internalized healthier patterns, even if they're not conscious of them. Um, if you grow up in a home where there's a loving relationship between parents. This is what you've observed. They stay together. Um, two soulmates. Um, you haven't witnessed any abuses of any kind. That'll be your pattern. In most instances, I have to leave a little, because there's, you know, variability in life. There's individuality. Right. There's misinterpretations. There's uh, attitudes, constitutional issues, all kinds of stuff. But generally speaking, uh, this is someone I would worry less about. Okay. Uh, it's the unhealthy, and I listed them in the book. They're now 12. I've added two more. Unhealthy relationship experiences that tend to get into our love lives. And I, I wanted people to be aware of that list because that's where the problems occur. If you see one of those or more patterns in your family experience, not exclusively, you can get exposed to stuff later in life and have an impression, internalize it, uh, use it as part of your expectation. But I think most of it takes place earlier. Uh, periods in childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. Uh, really, uh, the family of origin is a classroom. And you know, he, uh, Judith, um, I became aware, you've ever, and, and this guy's from your neck of the woods. Have you ever heard of Leo Buscaglia? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Leo Buscaglia, an uh, emotional Italian fellow, uh, 1972. He was a professor at the University of Southern California. Okay. And uh, in his classroom, a woman tragically committed suicide. As far as I know, and what I've read, it was because of a love life issue. So 
Um, he was very distraught. He went to the administration of the university and he said, I have to teach a love class. My students don't understand love well enough. I have to teach a love class. And they laughed at him. Leo, do you have anything better to do? Come on, Leo. You know, And he persisted and persisted. So they gave him a classroom, no credit, for four years. 100 students, semester, standing room only. Wow. Wow. And the first class, tears came down his eyes. I'm not sure I can teach you anything about love. I'll try my best. We'll learn together. My question to you is, does the University of Southern California have a love class on their curriculum? I don't know, but maybe I should investigate that. Uh, I would wager not. Okay. Why not? Because love is too powerful very important emotions that we do not teach our children, our adolescents, our young adults about. Love and grief. All right. You're not going to make it through this life without experiencing grief. It's the upside down opposite of love, in my opinion. Okay. If you love, you'll grieve. If you lose that love, you'll grieve. We don't teach about love. Love, I've discovered in my 34 years, 35 years of practice in this town, that many, 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 many issues that create mental illness, that create emotional disorder, that create human suffering, occur as a consequence of problems in love. Whether it's love as Defined, in my opinion, love life means any and all relationships involving the emotion of love from the beginning of life. So your relationship with your mother, the first moment you're born, is a love relationship. So problems in love from the beginning of life at any point in life can create human suffering. But we don't teach anything about this phenomenon. Okay, and I'm going to add on to that because I started doing a talk to um, mental health professionals on something that I created for a mental health symposium, and it's a trademarked idea called Recipe for a Heart-Healthy Divorce because I think divorce is a growth experience as any challenge in life is. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. And if you use it as a growth experience, Mm -hmm. it won't be as tragic on you personally. Absolutely. Oh, beautiful. And when I was doing that, I did a lot of research. So I started with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying, Her Five Stages of Grief. And then my additional research uncovered two more stages of grief when you divorce. And that was fear and guilt paired together, and apology forgiveness. So the the reason why there are two more stages of grief in divorce is because the other person is still living. And more than likely, we still have to deal with them if we have children together. Yes, absolutely. We're we're not going to lose each other. And so I don't think grief 
is explored enough in divorce. And I don't think people are given, they don't give themselves the time to grieve. And I don't think their employers, their family, give them time to grieve. No, absolutely not. And in my line of work, uh, I have dealt with grief as a consequence of divorce, but it's much more common to deal with grief as a consequence of death. I get, I, I do a lot of, uh, I have a subspecialty uh, disability consultation. So I, I see a lot of patients referred from Verizon Corporation here on the East Coast. And so I put uh, people out on sick leave and I, 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 uh, I, I, I certify their I provide reports to back up their disability and such. And many, many, maybe 50% of the disability referrals I get uh, are as a consequence of death, especially during the pandemic era where oh people would die, multiple people and family in some instances. And really becoming aware of how people stifle grief, how people interpret grief as sickness or weakness, you know, and how people avoid grief, blunt grief, and how important it is to recognize that grief is the emotion that accompanies healing of the heart. When when somebody dies or something ends, our heart is broken. Grief is the mending, the emotion that occurs when we mend. It's it's a it's a very moist emotion. Tears come feelings come, hurts are there. Um, and we just do such a poor job of that emotion, which is fundamentally therapeutic. Right. It's and people look at it as weakness. Come on. It's been yeah, yeah, a right, month. Right. Can't you get yeah. over oh, it in the divorce space? And you know, no, you know, who knows? Yeah. You know, and, and I, in a general sense, Women have an easier time, not always, but an easier time expressing grief. Because we're allowed to cry. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Do you know how many men I've had in this office over the past 30 years? Door locked. Big guy. Trust me. Something comes up. They start to cry. And the feeling in the room is. I shouldn't be doing this. This is not masculine. This is not manly. There's something wrong with this. And you have to repeatedly smooth that over. Give the person permission. No, men can cry. Men can feel sorrow and loss. You have to feel it. You don't feel it. It never resolves. Never. I've had patients in this office cry about a death. I had a woman in here cry about a death. Her grandmother died 30 years ago, and she cried deeply, wept in my office, remembering, because I was doing a bit of an intake and getting some idea what was going on in her family experience. And she mentioned her surrogate mom or her mother's mother, and she just cried, lost this woman when she was in her late teens. She still needed her. Um, it was very bad. The loss, it felt bad. There was a lot of hurt. She put all of that away. Mm-hmm. It emerged in that moment because I did a lot of invitation, I think. <laughs> and she was willing to risk it because this was, I think sometimes too, people feel like grief is going to be so overwhelming, so powerful, 
that they'll never get out of it. They'll, you'll cry forever. Um, so that's a misconception that has to be softened. You know, grief comes and goes. Grief is really a, a reoccurring emotion. Uh, and, and if you welcome it, it erodes slowly over time. I, I have this metaphor that I use with, with some patients. Yes, if, you know, uh, I've told a, a lot of my female patients, you know, grief is like a very handsome man that comes to your door, knocks on your door, and has flowers in his hand. And if you open the door, you get the flowers. The man will sit beside you. He'll embrace you. He'll listen to you. You'll talk about how much loss you feel. It'll be a wonderful experience. Then he'll look at his watch at some point and say, okay, we're done for today. I'm going to come back tomorrow. And if you continually open the door for this person, you'll find that he comes less frequently over time and stays for shorter periods of time until everything feels like it's settled. If you don't open the door for him, he'll break through your wall. He'll, he's the ugliest person you've ever seen. He'll interrupt work. He'll create symptoms, physical sickness, and a bunch of other things. Well said. Well said. That was great. So, Dr. Jordan, to end our time, because an hour is okay. just <laughs> We're having too much fun, Judith. <laughs> this is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And I love your candor yeah. and your vulnerability and, and your honesty, uh, you know, even thank using you. yourself as an example. And thank you, Victoria, even uh. though I haven't met you for allowing that to happen. Uh. Any takeaways we can give the audience um, whose appetite has now been wet for uh -huh. more information. Any takeaways? Takeaways. Well, I the the standard takeaway that I'm I'm always going back to is just emphasizing again the importance of the idea of being able to and having to from time to time work on our love lives. I think that phrase is very important because it 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 suggests. That love life is not something that you just, oh, my family taught me about love. I don't need to talk about that. Or I don't need to learn anything about that. I know how to do that naturally. I'm sorry. That's not good enough. Especially if you've had hardships in your life. Understanding what goes on in your love life gives you an opportunity to work with it, to make changes, to unlearn unhealthy learning. And that is really, really important. So. That's my takeaway. If if anybody listening to this conversation gets curious about working on their love lives, I invite people to buy the book. There's a little more information. Go to the website. My website, I built it in 2012. I wanted it to be an online library of real articles that talk about love life stuff, stuff that people can relate to, stuff that no, no flowers and kisses, things about love relationships that people get stuck on that they, they need to understand to work with. So that's that's what I want to inspire people to think about, you know? And, and, you know, as a concluding statement, learning is one of our greatest assets. Learning, le human beings can learn. We learn from the moment we're born to the end of life, very end of life. Learning is our greatest asset and our biggest liability. 
If you learn something unhealthy, it can dominate your life for a lifetime. So true. And if you, and so along with learning comes the capacity to unlearn. If you've learned something, you can unlearn it. And that's the fundamental definition of working on your love life, finding out what's unhealthy, if there is something unhealthy, and understanding how that can be unlearned and something healthier learned as a substitute. And that's very important. And that can be done in tandem with your partner, can it not? Absolutely. In tandem with partner, uh, as a divorced single person, thinking about getting back into the love life. Uh, I just want to mention that, you know, I'm I'm doing some love life consultations if people need a little support. If they read the book and they feel like they want a little guidance or support to get themselves to begin the unlearning method in a way that feels uh, right to them. Uh, I'm available by phone. Victoria's also doing them as well. So that information's on the website if people want to check that out. And, and it's in the show notes, uh, what, the show notes. Right. for Thank this episode. You. So all of that is going to go in Thank there. You. Dr. You. Jordan, you have been <laughs> absolutely informative and delightful. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Thank you for inviting me, Judith. And I love your questions, okay? <laughs> Every single one. Well, Thank you know, you. my secret <laughs> is I need to use them in my work. So I definitely... All right, well... Uh, every when I do a podcast and I feel like I've learned something as a consequence of it, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Well, thank you. That's thank you. That's so special. That means a lot to me. And for all of you, I invite you to please comment on this episode. Please put your questions in the chat. Please let me know if you would like more of this content uh, in the future. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.